Have you ever blessed God? When we look through the Scripture, that is something that is repeated over and over again. We can look at 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be our God and Father. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be our God and Father. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What do these passages mean when it says, Blessed be our God and Father? It does not mean that our God occupies a state of blessedness. Rather, it means that our God is worthy of blessing. And yet we may ask, what does that mean? Our God is worthy of blessing. The term translated there is actually a compound word that simply means to speak good words. When this verse and others like it say, blessed be our God and Father in heaven, they're pointing out to us that our God is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of reverence and respect. He is worthy for us to say good things about Him. The question we may ask, though, is he just worthy of good words, or is he worthy of more than that? I believe as we look at the Scripture, we find out that our God is worthy of so much more than just good words. He is worthy of our constant and continual devotion. He is worthy of our perseverance in His Word and in His will. Our God is worthy of blessing. And as we examine 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I believe we find exactly why our God is worthy of blessing and praise and honor. I'd like for us to examine this text and notice four reasons why our God is worthy of such great blessing and honor and praise from us. The very first thing that I'd like for us to notice is our God is worthy of blessing because He has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's begotten us again. This calls to mind our rebirth. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 3? John chapter 3 and verse 3, Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night. And in John 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We're supposed to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, of course, accomplishes this in our baptism. He recreates us. He breathes into us new life. Even though we have been dead in our trespasses and sins. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul said in Colossians 2 and verse 12 that we are buried with Him, that is, buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. We're raised with Him to walk in new life, reborn. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 1 said, And you 
He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We drop down to verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In our baptism, we are recreated. We are born again, born anew, given new life. And when that happens, that new birth, we are adopted as sons. Ephesians 1 and verse 5 says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. When we are born again, we become children of God. What a great blessing that is. Who's your father? God is my father. And if God is my father, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 points out that I have an inheritance. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. That's going to take us to Peter's next statement. We need to hold that thought for just a few moments. But we are begotten again. We've become children of God. And when we were begotten again, Peter points out that we are begotten to a living hope. What an amazing blessing that is, because according to Ephesians, we were those who were without hope. If you look in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. In Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, Paul said this about us. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This speaks specifically to us as Gentiles, non-Jews. We were without hope. We were without Christ. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. But through Christ we have been brought near, and now we have not only hope, but a living hope. Paul talked about that hope in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8. Beginning at verse 23, Paul said not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. For why does one still hope for... Excuse me. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. This is our hope. The redemption of our bodies. No longer in this corruptible flesh, but redeemed and taken to heaven in incorruptible bodies. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15, 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. These bodies are corruptible and they will be sown and laid in the ground in corruption and dishonor but will be raised in glory and honor and incorruptibility. That is our hope. 
That is our living hope. Because we have been begotten again. This is our hope, Paul said, Peter said, through the resurrection of Christ. We have this hope because Jesus came down to this world, lived among us, and He died. But He didn't stay there. He was resurrected. And because we can look back to that resurrection, we can recognize that we too will be resurrected. That we're not just living this life and then thrown in the ground and it's over. We have something to look forward to. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning at verse 12 demonstrated this on down through the remainder of the chapter as he argued that there are those who claim there is no resurrection. But if there's no resurrection, how can we say that Jesus was resurrected? And if Jesus is resurrected, then we have hope that we will be resurrected. After all, think about this. What would be the point? What would be the point of Jesus, deity, God coming down into this world living, dying, and being resurrected, if all we were going to do is live and die and stay that way. There would be no point in that. Why not just let us live and die and leave it there? But you see, there's something beyond this life, and we have a hope, and we know it, because we can look back, and we can see our Savior resurrected, so that you and I can also be resurrected. What an awesome blessing that is. Our God deserves to be blessed. As we continue on in 1 Peter chapter 1, we get to verse 4, and we find out that not only are we begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but we're begotten again to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Remember, we just read Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 that pointed out that if we're children of God, the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit, we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance. But where is that inheritance? It's reserved in heaven for us. There are a great many blessings that come with Christianity, even in this life. But the blessing that we are looking forward to the most is nothing that happens here. It is eternal life. Matthew 19 and verse 29. Matthew 19 and verse 29. In the wake of the rich young ruler who would not give up his earthly blessings, Jesus said in Matthew 19:29, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. This is the blessing God has given us, eternal life. And because of this hope, because of this inheritance, our God is worthy to be blessed. But keep in mind that since our inheritance is not in this world, but in the next. We must not be deterred from our inheritance simply because of what happens down here. That, in fact, is the point that Peter is striving for us to recognize. The central issue of the entire book of First Peter is that Christians are oppressed. Troubles happen. We all go through difficulties of all shapes and all sizes. But we did not become Christians in order to gain an easy life. We became Christians in order to gain eternal life. And we need to keep our minds focused on that. 
Not getting distracted by what's down here in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul talked about keeping our eyes on the goal. Beginning at verse 12, Philippians 3. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We must not lose sight of that. We must keep our eyes focused on the goal and not turn away from God believing He's abandoned us just because we deal with difficult things here. Let's think about this inheritance, though, for just a few moments. How many people do you think we could get to go into the waters of baptism if we promised them a million dollars once they came up out of it? You think we could get some? I think we could. But what kind of reward is that? Is that really a good reward? This is a reward that can be lost or stolen. It's a reward that will deteriorate with time and break down and rust and decay. It's a reward that perishes with the using. It's a reward that when we die, loses all of its value. Every single bit of it. No wonder Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, he says, as we go into verse 20 of Matthew 6, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Consider the inheritance that God has promised us. He's not promised us a million dollars. He's reserved an inheritance for us in heaven. How great is that reward? That is an awesome reward. And Peter points out it can either be lost or stolen. It's reserved. It will not rust or decay or break down. It is incorruptible and undefiled. It does not perish with the using. Peter says it doesn't fade away. And brethren, it doesn't lose its value when we die. In fact, that is when we realize the full value of our inheritance. What a great God we have. What a great blessing He's given us. And He deserves to be blessed by us. But Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. After pointing out that we have an inheritance reserved in heaven... He says to us in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Keep in mind, Peter is writing to persecuted Christians. He's pointing out to them that this inheritance that is reserved is reserved for only a certain group of people. It's reserved for those who are kept by God through faith. What do we learn from this? We learn the great blessing that God has not left us down here by ourselves. Just try to make it to heaven on our own. Instead, He is guarding us. He is keeping us. He is protecting us from all the things that would separate us from Christ. Paul explained this further in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, Paul said, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Romans 8.33 continues, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. In verse 37, Paul says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is protecting us. He will not allow us to be separated by any outside force that would try to come between us and Christ. He is reserving that inheritance for us. And He is keeping us, guarding us, helping us. But notice how. Through faith. We need to recognize that nowhere does the Bible promise that anyone who abandons their faith has an inheritance reserved for them. God is guarding us and keeping us through faith. That is through His Word that He has revealed. We can read it and understand it and believe it. And by that, we have an inheritance reserved and ready for us in heaven. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Actually, let's begin in verse 21. Colossians 1, 21. You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, or which I, Paul, became a minister. God is protecting us through faith. If I continue on, He is with me. He guards me. He keeps me through His Word. How amazing that is. We must not ever think that God has abandoned us just because we're going through difficulties. In fact, that is Peter's point. He's writing to those who are going through persecution. He is pointing out to them, God has not abandoned you. These persecutions, these oppressions, the temptations that you're facing will not come between you and Christ if you maintain your faith. You see, Christians, when they face difficulty, sometimes decide to turn their back on God. God's not with me. He doesn't care about me. Instead, when we face difficulties, those are the times we ought to lean the most on God. I'm reminded of three young Hebrews back in the book of Daniel. Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, more commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they faced the concept of being cast into the fiery furnace, they knew that their God was keeping them. They knew that their God was protecting them. And they said to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 and verse 16, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, 
and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. They recognize our God can deliver us from this fiery furnace. Whatever difficulty you're facing, our God can deliver us from that. But you see, they also recognize that maybe he won't deliver us from this physical torment of the fiery furnace. But nevertheless, he will deliver us from you, Nebuchadnezzar. Our God may not deliver us from the torments and tragedies and things that we face in our lives. But in the end, our God will always deliver us from whatever is trying to overcome us. If at no other place than in our deaths, He has promised that reserved inheritance in heaven. Our God is keeping us. He is with us. We must maintain our faith if we're going to have that inheritance reserved in heaven. Now, we talked about some very great things that God has given to us. However, do you realize that even with these three awesome blessings, that we we have still not fully explained why our God is worthy of our blessing? To understand that, we've got to go back up to the beginning of the passage. And we've got to recognize that God has given us all these things out of mercy. God has not given us these things because we deserve it. God has not given us these things because we are somehow awesome people that just deserve to be His children, that deserve to have a living hope, that deserve to have an inheritance reserved for us, that deserve to be kept through the power of faith. We don't deserve that. God has given us this blessing through His great grace and mercy. If it were owed to us and we deserved it, God would not deserve our blessing. In fact, He would not even deserve our gratitude. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul pointed out, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If we somehow had worked and earned these things, we wouldn't even have to say thank you. It would be just like getting a check from a boss. We deserve it because we worked for it. But we didn't. And that's the amazing thing. God looked down on us and adopted us as His children, and we didn't deserve that. God has reserved an inheritance for us in heaven, and we still don't deserve it. God is keeping us and guarding us through faith, and we don't deserve that. He is doing that fully out of His mercy and out of His grace, out of the goodness and love of His heart. He has bestowed these things on us. You see, when we became children of God, when we were baptized and begotten again, recreated, we didn't do anything to earn that. When we continued steadfastly in God's will, unmoved from the gospel, we have not earned anything. In fact, remember Luke 17 and verse 10? Luke chapter 17 and verse 10, Jesus pointed out to us, Likewise, you, when you've done all those things which you're commanded, say, we're unprofitable servants. We've done what was our duty to do. When we have submitted to Christ in baptism and submitted to His Word, continue faithfully, all we've done is what we should have been doing from the beginning anyway. We haven't somehow now paid for our sins and deserved heaven. We're receiving mercy and grace, even still. This is God's blessing to us. That He gives us all these things, and we don't deserve a single one of them. He's given it to us anyway. Isn't that amazing? 
when we recognize this, what we come to understand is that our God does not deserve to be blessed on Sunday, but on every day. Our God does not deserve to be blessed in congregational worship. He deserves to be blessed in constant, continual, personal devotion and worship. Our God does not deserve to be blessed within this building. Our God deserves to be blessed in our homes, in our schools, on the job, and every place we may find ourselves. Our God does not deserve to be blessed only in word and in tongue. Our God deserves to be blessed in deed and in truth. Our God deserves our constant devotion. Submitting to Him at all times. And in that way, blessing and glorifying Him. May we never be like those hypocrites to whom Jesus spoke, quoting from Isaiah in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. May we never be vain worshipers. They come together and sing songs of praise and say things about blessing and praising God, but then in our lives demonstrate that our hearts are far from God. Our God deserves our blessing, not just from our mouths, but from our hearts and from our actions, constantly, continually, all the time. Isn't our God amazing? Hasn't our God done wonderful things for us? He deserves our blessing. He deserves our praise and devotion. Let's work to give it to Him.